Just a quick announcement, Naomi Klein tickets for the conversation in the RDS on the 29th of September. We have new tickets coming out at 29 euros. They are on sale this morning. Go to kilconomics.com. You'll see them on sale. Naomi Klein's book, Double Ganger. It's an amazing read. I've been going through it in the last couple of days. Wonderful, wonderful read. Those of you who know your activist politics will know Naomi Klein from the No Logo, from Shock Doctrine, an extraordinary activist, thinker, intellectual. And we have new tickets on sale from this morning. Kilconomics.com. We will see you in the RDS. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time and Ireland have ratcheted up. John, what was it, about 80 points against uh, Romania? Something yeah, 82-8, I think it was. Yeah. I'll tell you, I am down in Croatia, which would not be uh, known for either a hurling or rugby parish, let's just say. And so you can't see it at all. And I was out for lunch the other day when Ireland were playing. And luckily, our WhatsApp group was uh, deployed by John, who's sick as a dog. And he <laughs> updated us on the scores. We were three paddies sitting in the middle of nowhere in Croatia. And of course, John, every time we scored, what did we do? Another bottle of wine. Another bottle of wine. So that, was feeling, a, that was a lot of bottles of wine, was, I tell you. I know, I know. I know. So I'm, I'm feeling a little bit, a little bit, uh, hopefully, thankfully I'm back next week, feeling a little bit ropey now today. I would but say. Yeah, what a performance. What a performance. Oh, it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Of course, this is, we're going to talk about rugby today, I know. We're going to do the economics of rugby. Yeah, which is my specialist subject, as all my mates will attest to. <laughs> Well, I mean, the funniest thing about the economics, we're talking about how rugby is financed, how sport is financed in general, how Ireland have done quite an extraordinary job at turning around the finances and maybe therefore the performance of the international and provincial rugby team. We're going to talk about all that sort of carry on. But first, John, you want to talk about the G20, which was getting on your nerves. G20, yeah, it was. I was just lo- watching that after we spoke with uh, Vikas last week which was, uh, he was fantastic. Actually, quick apology for the quality of the line. It wasn't great. We did, we did our best, but uh, anyway, there you go. But he was talking about the G20. And it was interesting, what's come out of the G20 this weekend is this new agreement between India, the Middle East, Europe, and America. And it's it looks like a kind of arrival to the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, 
Absolutely. And and Europe are going to invest in the region of 300 billion over the next while in it. But well, it, it's, it just it's begs a, a few questions, though, about what, what does that mean for China and, and the fact that Russia were absent, that, you know, what does it mean for the China-Russia relations and, and the kind of global shift of power? Well, you know, what is a very bizarre thing, John? I, I mean, I read that and it's, it's, it's very clear. This is like the Belt and Road Initiative without China. Mm. Yeah. And this is the Americans basically saying to the world, hold on a second. We are still top dogs. Do you want to be with the Chinese or do you want to be with us? And if you want to be with us, you sign up to a whole load of conditions, but in return, we will guarantee security, safety, blah, 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 blah. And it's very, very clear that the Biden administration, if you if you contrast Biden with Trump and prior to that Obama, mm. they were all based on the idea, particularly Obama, that China was not an enemy of America, but a complement of America. There was a book written about 15 years ago by Neil Ferguson, Scottish historian, very, very yeah. good brain. Good lad, actually. We've had him on the podcast talking about how Scottish and Irish people delight at England's defeats in rugby. <laughs> so he's, he's, he's also the man who's the Harvard professor of history. But late one night when I was actually with him, uh, he pulls out an app on his phone, which is the five most sectarian Rangers chants, which was sent to him by a mate from Scotland. <laughs> So he's an all-round good egg. He's all-round good. Egg. He's not even a Rangers supporter. He supports Partick Thistle. But oh, right, that's very niche. Yeah, very niche. Very, very niche. But we're going to talk about rugby and soccer and everything in a second. But he wrote a book called Chimerica, and this was the idea that America and China were so intertwined that they wouldn't go to war. Now he, that wasn't his suggestion. His suggestion was, hold on a second. These are two huge global powers that have so much interrelated, interconnected trade, investment, et cetera, mm. that they're largely going to be a symbiotic relationship. But he did produce the caveat, which is the following. Do you remember I told you about this book written in 1913, the biggest selling book in the English language, two million books sold. And it was about the idea that all European powers were so intertwined financially, economically, commercially, that nobody would go to war. And yeah. that was the thesis before the First World War. The First World War was such a shock because there had been this globalization. People yeah. had traveled, goods, services, commerce, etc., had intertwined Britain and Germany in particular so much that the idea was they'd never go to war. Yeah, and that was the whole idea of, of the EC afterwards as well. Treaty of Rome, 19, 1957, John. Treaty of yeah. Rome was the, the idea that basically France and Germany. So the European Union is an amazing example of how countries that used to hate each other end up getting along through commerce, through trade, and then increasingly mm. through the law, and increasingly through various treaties, right? The language of money and trade. The language of money, exactly. But also the language of, of, of democracy, self-respect, the, the idea that big countries can't take over little countries, all that yeah. sort of stuff, you know? I mean, I think that's why Irish people love the EU so much. I really like the EU, is because it gives you a chance as a small country to be at the top table. Right, yeah, and that yeah. was never, ever, ever the case in the imperial regimes. So let's go back to China and, and America. It's very, very clear that the Biden administration has recognized or has decided to recognize that China is an enemy and the world is now bipolar. So it's basically America on one side with European allies 
and China, and as you say, Russia on the other side. Mm. And either you're with us or against us. Now, what's very interesting is that American power still speaks, right? Yeah. So you don't get the Europeans and, and, and the UEA and all the Saudi Arabia signing up to, and India signing up to a sort of a Belt and Road Initiative ex-China unless the bureaucrats and the diplomats in the back rooms have actually made this case very, very effectively, which is who do you want to be with, the Chinese or the Americans? Now, the fascinating thing is, when we talked about China a couple of weeks ago, mm. is that there was an assumption that the 21st century was going to be Chinese. That yeah. assumption is now completely unraveling. And yeah. the idea is that China is not the country that is going to take over the world. It's not the country that's going to be the most important economy. In fact, what it is, it's going to be a reasonably isolated country which produces a lot of stuff. Right, whereas the okay. Americans, whereas, you know, when we did a couple of podcasts years ago, John, on, on, on Africa, and the Africans yeah. been so much in the pocket of the Chinese, I think the Americans now have gone, American diplomacy for years came under this thing called adult supervision, which is a bizarre idea, right? It's the Washington <laughs> yeah, consensus, yeah. that the Americans basically were the, decided they were the adult in the room. And we would supervise the playground. So we'd be nice to the Japanese, we'd be good to the French, we'd be good to the Brits, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, we were the adult in the room. That's the youngest yeah. thought. Yeah. They lost that. Interestingly, once the Cold War ended, the Americans became top dogs, absolute top dogs, and they kind of took their eye off the ball. So diplomatically, they said, oh, don't worry, we, 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 we run the world now. Mm. Soviet Union's gone, communism's gone, et cetera, et cetera. I think now they realize, hold on a second, we need to be more active in our diplomacy. And yeah. one of those things is, but John, I'll tell you the weird thing is, the Belt and Road Initiative was originally a Chinese idea to try and avoid the fragility of trade by sea. This is the interesting thing, right? What do you mean by that? So the vast majority of global trade goes on the sea. And the reason yeah. it goes on the sea is the sea is seven times cheaper than going by land. Okay. So... These massive, massive containers you see coming out of Chinese ports called like Nimbo and these places, right? They go in this bizarre, circuitous route to Europe. They go through the Straits of Malacca, which is at Singapore. It's the mm. tiniest, and I've been there. It's, a, it's an extraordinary place between Malaysia and Indonesia, right? Yeah. You've got these extraordinary little straits, right? And Malacca is this, when we talk about the Portuguese, it was originally a Portuguese trading outpost, right? Right, yeah. And it's a tiny, tiny strait where the vast majority of global trade goes through, which is an amazing thing to think about, yeah. right? Yeah. And it goes through there, and it's fragile, and it's largely Chinese. And then, of course, it goes through the Suez Canal and up into Europe. So there's these two choke points, which is Egypt and Malacca. Yeah. And the Chinese understand that those choke points are not controlled by them. So their navy doesn't control the access to Chinese trade. The mm. only Navy that actually does is the U.S. Navy, which is by far and away the biggest Navy in the world. Yeah. So what the Chinese are doing with the Belt and Road Initiative is they're trying to reduce their dependency on sea travel. But we know that sea travel is much, much cheaper, much, much cheaper than road travel, right? Becoming cheaper and greener as well. Greener and bigger, right? Mm. But the point is, so the Belt and Road Initiative, financially, John, makes absolutely no sense, Right. It is a great example of geopolitics subsuming economic and commercial reality mm. because the way in which trade from China gets out to the world is by sea. 
And the interesting thing is the Americans still control the world's seas, right? So at those choke points, the Americans are always present, whether it's the Strait of Hormuz around UEA, whether it's Egypt, whether it's Malacca, the Americans are always present. But it also makes those points like real flashpoints or potential flashpoints for any sort of conflict if it kicked off. I mean, then you also have the the Panama Canal as well. And to a much lesser extent, you know, the Rock of Gibraltar and Tarifa there. I mean, if you're ever down there, it's a tiny, you're looking across at Morocco and these massive ships coming and going in and out of the Mediterranean. John, it's a fascinating thing you say, right? Is that one, we always say, you know, to understand economics, you've got to understand human nature, right? Mm. But to understand global economics, you've got to understand transport. Transport is the key, right? right? So globalization, we forget that. Globalization is based on the notion that transport via the world's oceans is going to be free, unfettered, and cheap, and without incident. Yeah. So the Chinese understand that completely. But they also understand that the Americans control the oceans. And if it's not the Americans, it's American allies control the Mm, oceans. Yes, yeah, yeah. And therefore, what the Americans are doing now in the G20 is they're saying, look, we understand that the Chinese want this Belt and Road Initiative. But what we're saying to you, India, what we're saying to you, Saudi Arabia, what we're saying to you, Europeans, is you come into our camp, not the Chinese camp. And this is basically the new Cold War. It is the new Cold War. It's simmering, it's not getting hot, but at every single stage in international diplomacy, what we are is the Yanks, or what we've seen is the Yanks have made this thing, either you're with us or against us. Yeah, And I think the G20 really evidenced that in the last couple of days. Well, it's it's interesting just on that as well, uh, when you say that, you know, the West versus East, but the West is kind of, as it gathers its people around, Biden left the G20 early to go to Vietnam. Yeah. You know, which, which kind of in itself speaks volumes. And the reason he went to Vietnam is Vietnam is increasingly the competition to China. So all those businesses and companies that outsourced themselves to China in the last 20 years are now going to Vietnam. So right. this is highly strategic. And the Vietnamese have shown an extraordinary ability to forgive the Americans, which is amazing. And they're kind of very wow. practical. They're, yeah. they're very practical. They're saying, okay, fine, that, that happened. The, the war happened. That's old history. Let's go into a new chapter. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. So and Vietnam I, is the location of choice for outsourcing now, not China. Right. Okay. Vietnam is still a communist country officially, though, yeah? Yeah, it is. It is. But it's, it's a, bit like, a bit like China is still a communist country officially. But, you know, what it is, it's it's this Asian fusion of, you know, central control on the one hand. They're basically proving that you don't need to be democratic to be capitalist. The Asians are proving that. You can actually be capitalist and central controlled economy. And that's what they're doing in Asia. And there's any number of great books on this thing. And I don't know if on the book club, which we're coming up and we're going to be doing that, that book, Easy Money, very soon. I'm going to explain that to you. We'll do a little piece on the amount of fantastic books that are out there on the way in which the Asians operate, the difference between Europeans and Asians, American and Asians, and the way they run their economy. They run, they yeah. run society completely differently. Um, just the last comment on this is, 
on BRICS. I mean, we, we touched on the BRICS topic with VCAS as well. Yeah. But the, the interesting thing I was reading there as well was the fact that the African Union, as a union, have joined BRICS now as well. And, and what, what that might mean, although this new kind of Western Belt and Road Initiative would seem to kind of put that in the shade a little bit, even yeah, more well, so. I think, I think I think the world in this decade is a profoundly different place to the world in the last decade. And it is increasingly the case that the Americans have decided to be, what I would describe, much more muscular in their diplomacy. Mm. So the Washington State Department has changed profoundly in the last five years. And whether it's under Biden or not, Biden is an internationalist by nature. He's an old school Democrat, social Democrat. His worldview is very much that America needs to be present in the world, whereas Trump and Trump supporters were very much isolationist. And there is this incredibly long, detailed history going all the way back, John, to Alexander Hamilton and mm. Thomas Jefferson. So Thomas mm. Jefferson's worldview was that America, the new republic, would become almost a independent, isolated country. And they would have this extraordinary, kind of a, almost a De Valera-esque idea of this rural society that was religious, that was temperate, all these sort of things. And Alexander Hamilton said, no, 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 no. We have to be involved in the world. So if you look at all American history since the foundation of the United States has been this fight in the middle between isolationism and internationalism. And we see this, of course, the most conspicuous example is Woodrow Wilson, a yeah. child of Northern Ireland, mm -hmm. parents from Northern Ireland, who very much and very reluctantly brought the United States into the First World War. And there was a huge, huge political momentum in the United States not to get involved. Yeah. Then the Second World War, we forget the Americans were neutral for the first two years of the Second World War. And it was only when the Japanese attacked them that the yeah. Americans committed, right, at Pearl Harbor, right? So there's been this extraordinary friction at the heart of American policymaking between the internationalists and the isolationists. Trump is an isolationist by nature. Yeah. His idea is we will be okay on our own. And Biden and the Democrats tend to be internationalist. And the Republicans used to be internationalists, but because there's been a coup d'etat in the Republican Party by the Trump side, what you have is this idea that America can be on its own. So what we're seeing in the G20, I think, is this more internationalist Americans coming to the fore and saying, hold on a second, we have an obligation, not necessarily to the rest of the world, but to our own economy and our own people to be involved in the world. Because if we're not involved and we don't actually deploy our power, we will get usurped by the Russias, the Chinas, whoever happens to be. And as you said, the next theater of operation is Africa. And that's, yeah. I think, what the Americans are afraid of, which is that South Africa, because the ANC was always supported by the Soviet Union. So if you think about the ANC, the ANC's DNA is communist. Their DNA mm. and Moscow always supported them. Why? Because the Americans actually supported the racist government the apartheid government. They didn't say they did it explicitly, and eventually they did actually hang them out to dry. But the ANC is located firmly in Moscow's sphere of influence, and that's why the Americans are so shit-scared 
of South Africa turning. And that's why South Africa is more pro-Russian. South Africa is very sitting on the fence on, on yeah. Ukraine. The South Africans have said, well, it's not our fight. And frankly, our mates for the last 40 years have been in Moscow, not Washington. So yeah. lots lots to play with, John. Lots and, to play and, with. And, and indeed, South Africa are going to be one of our biggest challenges in the World Cup. Oh, look, I saw what you did there. Oh, oh. Genius. I'll give you the Ryan Tuberty Award for yes. presenting. <laughs> Let us go back to my specialist subject of rugby after this break. Okay. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So, Mac, rugby. Now, just before we get into the economics of rugby and sport and all that kind of stuff, I just want to take this opportunity to let you know that, well, like as you know, a lot of my mates are big into rugby. They are, by the way. Lads, I will tell you, listeners, I will tell you, John's mates are big rugby fans. You know, in fairness, they're proper, genuine rugby fans. But for the World Cup, we're doing this fantasy rugby league. And as we currently speak, after round one, the first weekend, I just... I'm sitting on top of the league. Wow. It's all down to my tactical selection and in-depth knowledge. But you, you know should, that. You should rub it in. You should rub that in. Because... Oh, 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 it might all change over time. But as of this moment, you know, in fairness, uh, that's why I'm announcing it now. John's mates are what you would describe as alicadoos, right? And if those of you who understand the term and know about rugby, the alicadoo <laughs> is the fellow who sits at the bar in the local rugby club and talks about rugby. Oh, there are plenty of them. Usually has never played. However, one of your lads, Dara O'Flaherty, yeah, yeah. was a, an amazing he was brilliant player. player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he yeah. and he and I played with him all the way up through school, and he was an amazing player. So yeah, he was Leinster in Ireland. Hats off to Dara. Galway's yeah. finest. He knows the game. But the other lads now. No, I know. And when I go to uh, and I do go to the Leinster matches, which is great crank, and it's for the social as much as the rugby. But when I sit beside Dara, Dara's kind of rolling his eyes, going because I'm going. So Dara, why why did the ref blow the whistle there? What's what, what's happening there on the on the pitch? And Dara's going, Jesus. <laughs> anyway, you can talk about rugby though, Mac, because you know. You, you've played a bit, haven't you? Ah, uh, now, Johnny boy, uh, <laughs> uh, 
Humble as I am. Humble yeah, as I am. Yes, having play, having as talked always, Mark, twice in Lansdowne Road. No, I, uh, the, the most terrifying memory I have of school is playing out in the wing in a school's cup final in Lansdowne Road. So you imagine, right? You're a kid, right? And yeah. the school's cup final, as we know, is a massive deal, right? Yeah. And you're yeah. out in the wing. So the problem is... a massive deal in South Dublin. It's South Dublin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, for, for, for rugby playing yeah. schools, right? So you're out in the wing. You're very cold because you yeah. don't get involved in the game. You know, this whole, you know, this Mac Hansen sort of new wingers who get involved in the game. In the old yeah. days, you waited for the ball to come to you. Yeah. And hopefully, hopefully... You're you like the lodger it. in football, yeah, yeah, you know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I remember distinctly, so Terra Newer were always the enemy when we were kids, right? It wasn't Michaels or Castlelock. Terra Newer were the, were the enemy. They were always really... Really a mm. good team. And CBC Monkstown, in fairness. CBC Monkstown were always the enemy as well, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. For, for, for different reasons, though. <laughs> for different reasons, yeah. But you're out in the wing. You're in your Blackrock College jersey. You've got your number 11 on your back. The out half on the town your team thinks, ah, your man's a flake, right? So they yeah. put this massive Gary Owen up. And I remember it was the first or second minute of the of the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. final. To test you. I'm out there nervous as fuck, right? Ball goes up. And I have a distinct memory of saying to myself, is this ball ever going to come down? He put it massive. Right? As your man yeah. used to say, McLaren, he put snow in it, right? And I'm sitting up there <laughs> and I'm waiting. And the whole crowd is watching. And I can hear their pack coming up to me. And I'm thinking, no, don't drop it. Just don't drop it. Just don't knock on the very first minute. And for some miraculous reason, it, the ball stuck. And I was yeah. able to hoof it away and away you go. But... Those school days playing rugby, you know, it's a very different game because, like, in in the, in the old days, you could be kind of skinny, red-haired lad on the on the wing. Yeah, like you didn't have to be bulked up. Or, and now they're now they're huge, absolutely they're huge, enormous, huge. Like wingers yeah. look like props now, you know. Yeah. But what but what has always amazed me, and it's a really interesting thing about rugby, is the less a fella played, the more they know. Right? Oh, so, God, yeah. No, that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. So you'd sit there. I'm week in, there. week out, I hear I'd it. I'd be sitting there, you know, in the pub with fellas who, who wouldn't know, you know, who wouldn't know an out half from a centre or a winger yeah. or a fullback, right? Had no idea, never played. And you're sitting there and they're talking about soft hands and all the lexicon of rugby, right? All the lexicon yeah. of rugby, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, and I, I'm like you, I don't understand the rules at all anymore, right? I just, yeah. like, you, you got the ball, you ran. It's, you hope it's to very price, complicated. Just, yeah. yeah, right? And there's stuff going on in the rock that you, you can't see, but, you know, there's whistles being blown and everything. You have no what, idea what's what, going on. What I, what I love, and particularly uh, some Leinster fans, I, I've actually only won Leinster game, which was last year, the semi-final against that French outfit. Who were they? Right. Toulon, Toulouse, right? Okay. Yeah, and, was, yeah. Uh, Peter Bannum, our old mate, gave me a ticket to it. It was a really good match. But I've sat in McKenna's watching yeah. a match. And listen to fellas, listen to fellas who I remember couldn't kick snow off a rope, right? Yeah. And the depth of knowledge and their wisdom and their criticism <laughs> and he should have done this, I should have done this. And I'm looking at them saying, I remember you in school. I remember how shite you were. And now yeah. you are the genius. And that's that's the Alakadu tradition. That's yeah. the Alakadu tradition, we, you know. Yeah, but uh, but answer me this because one thing that that's very obvious in rugby and the difference between, say, Irish rugby and rugby in in Wales or England or France in particular, is that here it's it's always seen as the South Dublin Royce like touts posh game, 
Whereas apart in from Wales, apart from Limerick, sure. But yeah. in Wales, it's seen as, as a working class game. And France, in the south of France, it's very much a working class game compared to yeah. in France, compared to soccer, for instance. But why, why is that? How did that come about? Well, the Welsh thing is very interesting. The reason rugby union became a working class game in Wales was because it was originally a posh game. And there weren't enough posh people in Wales. So the posh lads paid, imagine this, paid working class fellas to play against them. Right? Really? And that's how it became <laughs> a working class game in Wales. It's amazing. That's bonkers. So basically, you know, if you go to a Welsh game, it's like going, it's like going to a soccer match. It's a totally mm. different crowd. I, I would say much more passionate. I haven't been to an Irish game for years, right? But I believe that the atmosphere in the Aviva is awful because it's so corporate. And so many people are kind of on their phone, not really involved. Whereas people mm. say, if you go to the Arms Park, you know, the old Arms Park, right? I don't, know yeah. what it's, I don't even know what it's called now, the Millennium Stadium. You know, you're yeah. in the cauldron of Welsh culture. This is what they really, really believe. Now, what is fascinating about rugby in Ireland, John, and we're going to talk about this, is the financing of rugby. And it's about financing of sport in general. But rugby has become, since I played it as a young fella, which was very mm. much, as you say, a middle-class game in middle-class schools, right? It's become much, much more broadly based. Now, there are about 150,000 people in the country registered as playing rugby. There were 17,000 in the 80s, right? So it's 17. Cool. 17, one seven. Wow. Okay. Okay. So it has totally changed. The fact that it's a United Ireland team, I believe is hugely, hugely important. And yeah, apart from that song though. And of course that came, that also came from Derry, in fairness. Yes. Bill yeah, yeah, it did. Yeah, it's a brutal Kilter. song. Yeah. Ireland's, Ireland's call, the song's awful. But the turnaround in Irish rugby on the pitch has an extraordinary economic, commercial, and financial equivalent, which is the turnaround of Irish rugby on the balance sheet. And mm. that's what we're going to talk about. So Irish rugby, think about COVID was the worst thing to happen to every sport because there was no gigs, right? So yeah. all sports lost money. Irish rugby has recovered amazingly from COVID, right? So much so the IRFU generated 116 million euros in revenue last year, which is phenomenal. And wow. off yep. that, they I think they have a profit of about six or seven million. And they are reinvesting most of this in the game. And this is the fascinating thing, right? And it's a really, really important point to make that from a management and organizational perspective, what has happened in Ireland in the last 10 years in rugby should be a blueprint for the economy in general, or could be a blueprint of how to actually do things. Explain that. So in 2013, Six Nations, Ireland came second last. Believe it or not, France came last. They were awful then, right? Yeah. And the IRFU sat down and they said, hold on a second. We've got to figure this thing out because we cannot be a loser team. And what they did was they put strategic goals in place. And the strategic goals were the following, which was one Six Nations every four years to win for the provincial team to win what used to be called the Rabo Cup. It's the United Rugby Cup now, to win mm. that at least five times in the decade and to win four Heineken Cups, right? That was their objective. Yeah. Amazingly, with the exception of the Heineken Cups, where Leinster, as you know, always seemed to fall at the very, very end, all those achievements have been fulfilled. At the same time, they said, we are going to create 
the clubs in Irish rugby, so the Gary Owens and the Sunday's Wells and the, all these sort of clubs, right, mm. are not big enough to compete against anybody. So rather than do that, are the Black Rocks and the Clontarfs and oh, Terry yep. Lewis, all these yep. things, what we will do is we will have this Leinster, Munster, Ulster and Connacht system. And we will create these elite academies for these four provinces. And in so doing, we will allow Irish rugby to compete against French rugby, English rugby, etc. Right? Yeah. So what they did is that they took, as you said, those kind of posh schools, right? And they took those as accelerators of rugby excellence for young fellas. Okay? So the entire system is based on a grassroots idea that rugby doesn't have to make a profit. This is the key. Yeah, okay. The IRFU has generates huge revenue. Now, rugby has changed completely since we were kids. It's become much more broadly based. For example, a favorite club of mine is the Connemara All Blacks who play in Clifton, right? Right, yeah. They're, yeah, they're an amazing team. And I've, I've gone to see them play. They're brilliant, right? And of course, Connacht Rugby is, is on the up. Ulster Rugby, again, not doing so well. But again, if you go to the Kingspan Stadium in Belfast, if you've ever been to a rugby yeah. match in Belfast, it's an amazing experience. Much, much better than Leinster. It's much yeah. more passionate, right? The stand-up for the Ulster men and all that sort of stuff. Monster Rugby, as we know, came back stormer this year. And Leinster Rugby is the sort of gold standard, right? But Monster yeah. Rugby isn't that far behind, okay? And what has happened is the IRFU own the province teams. This is the key thing, right? And the IRFU take this revenue from the national team and they give it to the provinces. And, and what we see is that the provinces are competing in a way they used to never do so, right? The other thing is, if you contrast this, John, with what's happening in England. So English rugby is in a terrible state. Why? Because all 13, think about this, all 13 clubs in the English Premiership lost money last year. They're all going bust. Right. Why is that? Now, this is the fascinating thing, right? So English rugby decided to sell its soul to private equity. So there's a company okay. called CVC, which is a private equity company, and they bought 20% of the English premiership. So they own it, right? And what the English have gone down this bizarre route is thinking that rugby can emulate football. And do you remember what we did a podcast on the economics of football a couple of months ago? Yes. And the yeah, point yeah. And it was Roger Mitchell, a guy who used to be the head of the Scottish premiership. And he said, the way in which they pay players the mathematics of football is that it is almost guaranteed that football clubs will go bankrupt every year. Some football clubs, mm. because so much money goes to the players and so much it is all yes. about. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the owners, like the Glaziers and Man United, extracting yeah. income all the time, right? Yeah. So English rugby went down that road. And what you have is like Wasps, bankrupt. Worcester, bankrupt. London Irish, which was in the DNA of Irish rugby bankrupt. Now, what's going on is they've become either vanity projects for rich people, rich men in particular, okay? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Alicadoos. Alicadoos, but rich Alicadoos. And you have, yeah. therefore, you're entirely, entirely dependent on the whims of a rich guy, which is a disaster for any sport, right? And because they've actually welded themselves to private equity, private equity borrows money. So that means that English rugby is welded to the credit cycle. And the credit cycle, as we know, has turned from very low interest rates to quite high interest rates. Yes. That yes. means the owners are trying to extract cash out of the rugby 
clubs that they've invested in. And what you get is this crazy idea where English clubs overpay for players. They then don't get the gates. Then the TV rights aren't as much as they people imagine them to be. So suddenly they're trying to extract value out of the clubs by, do you know that English teams play during the Six Nations weekend, right? Irish teams, French teams, nobody plays, right? You watch the national team. English teams play at the same time England are playing. That doesn't make sense. And nobody goes to see the games because yeah. they're trying to extract value all the time. So what you look at is a totally different idea about financing, that English rugby has gone down the route of private bottom-up financing, kind of outsized capitalism, let's say. Yeah. Irish rugby has gone down the route of centralized financing. And what that allows the Irish provinces to have is a reasonably decent stream of income that they can protect and they can actually expect year on year. The English clubs have this totally different situation where English clubs are going bust. I'll give you, I'll give you one example, John. I'll just let me give you some numbers, right? Mm -hmm. So CVC, the private equity company, invested 200 million into English rugby in 2019. They got 27% of the equity of the premiership. Okay, so they own yeah. one third of it, right? Think about this. In the last year, right? Harlequins, 23 million of revenue, 2 million loss. Sale, 12 million of revenue, 3 million loss. Wasps, 13 million of revenue, 7.5 million loss, right? Wow. So yeah. they're managed appallingly, appallingly. And of course, what you find in the Irish case is we have this 116 million revenue last year, up from 87 million revenue the year before. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, it's going an extraordinary thing. Now, of course, the problem with, with this is that you can sit in your laurels, but it leads us to this other idea, John, which is how is sport going to be financed, the economics of sport in the future? Well, I was going to say that as Saudi Arabia kind of sports washing all over the shop, but golf and soccer and tennis and the whole shebang, like is English rugby and rugby in general prime target Not just for, English for rugby. the Saudis? Not just English rugby, the All Blacks, the most preeminent dominant brand in rugby. It doesn't matter they were beaten by France. They still are the, mm. the most dominant. They sold part of the All Blacks to a private equity company called Silver Lake, right? Oh, okay. What does that mean? A 40 to 50 million injection, right? So the All Blacks are not owned by the New Zealand Rugby Federation in total anymore. They're owned by a private equity company, a bit like what the UK but, did, but right? they're a national team. How could that work? Because they're, they're the brand. So the brand of the All Blacks is huge. So they've sold them, right? They've wow, sold the All okay. Blacks brand to a private equity, right? And amazingly, the All Blacks, New Zealand rugby, the preeminent rugby team in the world is running at a massive loss at the moment, right? Okay. Which is extraordinary, right? So then it comes back to your Saudi Arabia. Okay, Once you sell to private equity, Mm. It means that the national ability to control the national team disappears. So what's going to happen, I would say, is that the Saudis have come after football. They've come after golf. They've come after Formula One. The next big thing I suspect is going to be tennis, right? These mm. massive things. And what they're going to look at, they're going to look at the World Cup in France this week, next week, the week after, huge stadiums, massive coverage, et cetera. And the Saudis are going to say, how do we buy this game? And interestingly, if you take the 
England are the New Zealand model of rugby, that rugby union model, very clearly, having sold to private equity, you've actually decided we're going to sell anyway. So it's only going to be a matter of time before the Saudis begin to look at rugby and say, we're going to buy that too. Because they have so much money. They have so much money. There's TV rights, the model. Think about what what the Saudis do, right? They Mm. buy, as you say, sports washing, right? So they buy Newcastle Football Club and and, and what I would call proto-Saudis like UEA uh, buy, you know, Manchester City and and all Mm. these sort of things, right? And it seems to me only a matter of time before rugby becomes something the Saudis look to spend money on. And that then brings us back to the Irish model, which is the Irish model is not sellable because the IRFU own the provinces, right? Yeah. And everything is centralized, whereas the English model is decentralized and the Saudis can buy that up. So I think in the future, the Alakadus sitting in Clontarf Rugby Club our Sunday's Wells Rugby Club, our, you know, Gary Owen Rugby Club, will actually be discussing the economics of rugby like we are. And they'll be discussing whether or not it's a good idea for the Saudis to buy. Now, if the owner of Irish rugby was one vain individual, as is the case in English club rugby, that individual would sit down with the Saudis and do a deal. But the fact that Irish rugby is owned by the union, I think, Irish rugby will become impervious to this sort of investment. But well, then, let's so. well, let's hope so. But then it begs the question, if the English rugby union are bought by the Saudis, the Saudis can pay for the top players as in the English premiership. So yeah. English rugby, English rugby clubs become mirror images of English soccer clubs. And then will that therefore, will the best Irish players, the best South African players, New Zealand, Aussies go to England. Now, at the moment, the IRFU has been very, very clever, which has said, if you play outside of Ireland, you are not eligible for the Irish team. And that has allowed them, with the exception of Johnny Sexton, they did make an exception for Sexton, which I'm sure pissed off other players, but that has allowed them have a sort of a salary cap. You said to the guys... You can go play for London Irish, you can go play for Racing, but you're not going to be eligible for the real prize, which is playing for the country. Yeah. Question then is, will that be shattered by Saudis coming in, paying massive, like footballer salaries or close to footballer salaries yeah. for rugby players? And then naturally, as a sportsman, you're... You know, your shelf life is five or six years, maybe 10 years, right? Yeah. That's your opportunity yeah, yeah. to earn money. So I, I can't, I don't ever, ever criticize sportsmen or women going for the top book because they know they've only got five or six years at the top. And the question, therefore, what happens to rugby in that event, John? Mm. So, John, as you sit with your Alakadu mates on your WhatsApp group, <laughs> yeah. I think you should introduce the Saudi equation, right? To just throw a little grenade into the idea. Well, the world is my grenades. <laughs> now, I have cousins. I'll tell you one last story, right? Yeah. In 1983, I go down to Balavorni to my cousins. And I am saying to them, do you know that Ireland won the Triple Crown this year? And my cousin Scobie said to me, there'll be no crowns celebrated in this house, Triple Crown or anything otherwise, right? <laughs> and where are they all now? 
in Bordeaux watching yeah. the game and I'm working. <laughs> so there's been this massive change. These were GAA fellas down, yeah, GAA yeah, football, yeah. not even hurling. Football, football fellas. They're now off in Bordeaux texting me, having a crack in their Munster jerseys, right? And their Irish jerseys. That is the change in rugby. So as I'm saying to you, Munster men and my cousins, watch out. The Saudis are coming for you. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.